0: Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week, Matt Welsh, fellow podcaster, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. We're going to talk about the Bernie surge and answer the question, are we all socialists now? Check it out. Matt, welcome. Matt, thank you. We are at the luxurious Blaze TV Studios in I mean, Midtown Manhattan.
1: It's pretty nice, yeah. let's be honest about that. It's a nice spread.
0: And uh, I've started shooting more here just because there's. it turns out there's more interesting people outside of Washington, D.C. for some...
1: God, who knew? They yeah. wear
0: something besides khaki? Yeah, pants. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, and, and those blue blazers that... Oh. They're the worst. But I, I just insulted half my audience, so yep. I'm, I'm going to move on from there. <laughs> um, I wanted to do something that I haven't done on this show before, but there's there's a lot of really fascinating things, uh, tumultuous things going on in our political world. And you are editor at large at Reason,
1: yeah.
0: And and I think, and correct me, but I, I feel like you're you're the guy that looks at at politics and presidential politics. Is that primarily as, your yeah, take? as
1: much as as anybody else does. Yeah. Um, I sometimes travel over to 3rd partyville um a bit more than the average human does er, and ever should probably. But uh, yeah, I do pay attention to the big scrum politics. Yes, and and maybe we'll lift the,
0: the lid on what really goes on in the Libertarian Party, but I was, Ooh, God. I was thinking that we would talk about the Democrats right now because that's the street fight and Bernie Sanders is surging in American politics and I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Big S socialist politicians were not that popular. Holy cow! And right? Something something weird's going on out There's, there.
1: I saw a, an analysis today, and I'm blanking on the author of it, but it made a pretty interesting comparison to Bernie this year, and also in the Democratic parties and the, and his fellow candidates' response to him and Trump in 2015 and 2016. Which is to say, um, as we you know you and I have talked about in a, in other fora, like. 2016 was a weird year, and it wasn't just weird because of the Republicans. I mean, it's already strange when an independent who is a socialist uh, comes this close to taking over the Democratic Party from out of nowhere. uh, And it's uh, clear—I don't know if you went to the Democratic Convention in 2016. I did, yeah. um, Which was a much crazier affair than the Republican Convention, which most people hadn't predicted. But— all of the passion was coming from the Bernie side and all of the tumult and the protests and everything was coming from the Bernie side. It's clear like the next generation loved Bernie, did not so much love the nominee of the party. So he came that close to take, doing under to the Democratic Party what Trump did to the Republican Party in 2016. Um, th- and so the similarity from this year is that Republicans didn't know what to do. The establishment didn't know what to do with Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016. A lot of people just sort of either gave all their money to Jeb Bush to begin with, and please make That's it stop. how that work out? Your yeah. name is Bush. That that should work, right? Yeah. Um, or they kind of sat on this. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't. They didn't really attack Trump. In fact, he led the. And I say this as someone who's not uh, the biggest fan, to put it uh, uh, mildly. But like he created the template of the entire debate, like as soon as he came down the escalator and started talking about illegal immigrants, everybody else starts talking about illegal immigrants, suddenly suddenly Jeb Bush, who literally had just written a book about how immigration is good, was like, you know, these anchor babies, we got to do something about it, like it went, everyone went crazy, he led, so Republicans were terrified of Trump's voters, of the people that he was bringing in and firing up, people who had been kind of abandoned or ignored by the party for a long time. Democrats are like that now. They realize that the passion is Bernieite. You know, he's already pulled them so far to the left on economics in just four short years. A little bit uh, on the left and some civil libertarian concerns to only a little bit. Um, sadly, that's not like the most animating feature of the standard Bernie person. Um, but uh, but he's pulled them so far, so they're they're terrified of actually attacking him too much. Yeah. You only see sort of Mayor Pete will say something like, well, he's an old socialist, or Joe Biden, when he remembers what his name is, will we'll, uh, go after him. But, um, but they're kind of scared of him. And with that, I think that's one of the reasons why he's kind of uh, going up in the polls. And it's just... We're, we're in a time right now, we're in a populist moment on both sides, um, and maybe more than both um, sides, and people are attracted to the utopianism of populism. When someone says, I'm going to say the craziest thing, you know, the hell with your 35-yard lines in this football field, I'm going to blow it all up. And come up with some crazy suggestion. So Bernie Sanders is the, is the epitome of that. Like, he was asked this week, how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like I don't know how much this costs. This could cost a lot. Yeah, tell you that much. And, like, people are like, great. That sounds better to me than Elizabeth Warren, like, bringing out the pie charts and, like, trying to come up with a very like bogus numbers to kind of pay for Medicare for all. And it's it's kind of funny, right? Like the absolute pie-in-the-sky utopianism that is undoable and would wreck the economy is more inherently attractive than someone who is even making the pretense of having to pay for it. But that's kind of where we are right now. So I remember
0: it, it, you, you triggered a memory of mine from the 2016 convention. We were at the Democratic National Convention and two events are still sort of burned into my mind and I happened to be standing outside in whatever called the hallways in those those big arenas the right. Um, right after Bernie gave his concession speech and he came storming out and all of his delegates came storming out and they went across to another building and and essentially staged to sit in yeah and, and Ber- Bernie did it duct taping he- their mouths and yeah. stuff yeah and and we ended up talking to a lot of them and they they were not Democrat party regulars they were newbies and they, they, at that point they knew how much Bernie had been screwed by the Democratic machine and they thought the whole thing was rigged and you know, they, were, they, they were basically doing the progressive version of draining the swamp and, and, and taking this thing over. The, the Democrats uh, arguably in the short run sort of managed that problem, but, but I think they also created the problem that they're facing today because the, 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 the activists that animate the party don't trust the machine.
1: Right. Uh, and actually, what, what all of that reminded me of is what I also saw you, I guess we've known each other for a while, because the 2012 Republican National Convention, which was fascinating, because it's the first convention that happens in the era of the Tea Party. And yeah. this is back when the Tea Party was a more coherent and, and positive thing than the way I, I could at least consider it now. It's sort of more abundant. Well, it's, it, it's it, dead now. I, did, well, I wanted to be nice. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, so there were Tea Party activists. Moment of silence. <laughs> tea Party's silence. dead. Yeah. <laughs> but no, all, but the energy in, in that building, as you recall, came from, and I remember very uh, uh, directly, uh, Ted Cruz gives a speech mm-hmm. um, on the floor. And Ted Cruz um, says, you know, there's there's an interesting movement happening in this country. It happened in Utah. It happened in Kentucky. And he starts naming the states in which Tea Party-backed insurgents beat establishment candidates. Crowd loves it, and the establishment's like, eh. yeah. and meanwhile, behind the scenes, as you know, as you witnessed, and we talked about it a lot at the time. Every Tea Party activist and every Ron Paul activist, and they weren't the same people necessarily, and then also a lot of social conservative, too, who are activists, we're getting absolutely steamrolled. I mean, they were changing the rules. Last minute, they all, got—
0: All different, but outsiders. All yeah. the
1: different outsiders. And they staged a big protest yeah. there. And there was duct tape on those mounts, too. Yeah. Like, very, very similar. And, you know, you can, you can stage manage all you want uh, as an establishment, but— uh, you do that; uh, it's like admitting your own fear of your own base, and that's not ultimately tenable. Uh, I think in American politics, for good and for ill, mostly for good. I think yeah. like you can't you can't just force people to sit and take it Um, and it creates all of this energy that can that can pour out question is what does that energy look like does it translate into good policy and those things and that's where we're at right now it's a big open question and with bernie sanders a lot of it i think can go into a negative place for sure um just as i think some of it uh, a lot of it's gone a negative place with donald trump as well but the mechanism for an establishment saying no take it eat it yeah is kind of over and i think we're kind of seeing this right now um and that's uh, you know we're uh uh, on the uh, eve of the Iowa caucus, and then New Hampshire the week afterwards, and it's going to be fascinating to see whether, like Joe Biden, can just say, "I'm we're too scared of barky old socialists to do this." That that fight's going to yeah. be fascinating. Yeah, the the Republican treatment of, of Ron Paul
0: delegates, Tea Party activists, uh, at at that specific the breaking point was the 2012 convention. They created some counter-revolution, and, and they didn't create Trump, but they created the conditions that would allow for that sort of populist,
1: I'm gonna knock everything down guy to step in. Because you still need activists to, to do some of that knocking down. Yeah. And that's what you created. These people were radicalized there, and uh, they knew as much as anything else, some of it was ideology, but some was just like, I know that that dude tried to strong-arm me, I'm gonna get him back next time, yeah. and they did. Yeah, and that's the Democrats are going
0: through this right now, and it's sort of fascinating to watch um, I just read a, a beautiful opposition research piece written by Jonathan Chait of New Yorker. Which, New York Magazine. New York Magazine, thank you. Um, and it, it had links to all the craziest shit that Bernie has ever said <laughs> or done. I watched, and I can never erase this from my mind, a, a video of a, a topless Bernie Sanders drinking with a bunch of uh, Soviet era communists and they were, they were singing, um, uh, drinking, songs to the Republic and all that um, I can never unsee that but like the the machine that the Democratic machine I don't know if he would appreciate being lumped into that um, they're freaking out because because Bernie right now is killing it in in the early Democratic states
1: yes um, but there's also Bernie has a problem too that uh, maybe only recently he's beginning to overcome which is for the entirety of the Democratic race up until basically this week. There, you can you can measure the lanes, right? Um, there's a progressive lane that's been Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, and then whatever straggling. Right now it's only Tom Steyer, basically, in the race, who you'd really consider that way. Um, you know, a super impeachment, you know, green triple New Deal guy. Um, but before it might have been Bill de Blasio, it might have been this person, that. But, like, the progressive left lane, add up their polling numbers, uh, especially nationally, but in most local polls, too. It's never been much more than about 37 38%. It's been pretty stable like you know from 32 at the beginning now it's up to 38 they've grown the category a little bit just a little bit the centristy Lane so your Biden your mayor Pete you're now your Mike Bloomberg and Amy Klobuchar and then some people before all of that has always been like 46 47 48 and so can you overcome that and there's a game theory aspect to this too uh, which is one of the, inter- the reasons why the dust-up between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren is so interesting. Like, How long are they going to be playing chicken? Because if they're both in the race forever, Biden wins. Um, but if it breaks decisively for one or the other, and then one like gets out of the race, then now Sanders can can win. That's difficult, because I, mean, I think in an election where de- the, by far the biggest factor among Democratic voters in their treatment of who to vote for in ways that they haven't seen in generations, if ever is can you beat Donald Trump? Uh, Bernie has an answer to that question, which is interesting, and it might be true. I don't know, I've stopped making predictions in, in politics for good reason, but <laughs> since, which is- Since 2016? <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually since 2015. Yep. Um, since since Donald Trump came down, I saw him give a speech at Freedom Fest in July of uh, 2015. You can go back and look what I wrote at the time, and I concluded and wrote uh, at the time that there's no way Americans are gonna greet someone like that with uh, political success. I was totally wrong about that. Um, so I've been been uh, sitting back uh, ever, ever since then. Um, but Bernie's answer to the question is that I'm going to excite people who are outside of the process. Um, I'm going to start the revolution. The young people are gonna come out. I'm going to attract people who don't usually vote. He might, right? He does, there is this thing that the elite uh, establishment media does not want to admit that there are Bernie Trump voters. There's lots of them. Oh, there's lots of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and they're because you know they're outsiders. They're railing against the establishment. They are saying that your party has given lip service to whatever they've been talking about all these years, but they haven't actually gone for it. I'm busting apart the Overton window. I'm going to do crazy things and speak out of conviction and like put everybody on their heels. That's inherently attractive and that can attract outsiders. That said. You know, the most pragmatic voters in the Democratic primary are black voters. And so far, they haven't really broken for Bernie Sanders at all. And they're huge for Joe Biden because they think he can win. Yeah. He is
0: also like you, you mentioned that there's a lot of Bernie Trump voters. And I, I remember in 20, I think it was 2015. And I, I pull it up once in a while. Um, there was a New York Times article. They sent a reporter up to Burlington because Trump was trolling Bernie by holding a big Trump rally in Burlington, and they and people are lined up around the block as they always were for Trump rallies, and the reporter went down one after another uh, thinking that they would get all of this sort of anti-Trump, this guy's crazy, and and one after another said, I'm a Trump guy, but I, I dig this Bernie. If Trump doesn't make it, I'm a Bernie guy, and and vice versa, again and again and again, and it, it has something to do with, um, part of it is authenticity, but part of it is sort of what I would call sort of Flat Earth, negative-sum game economics, where immi- immigrants are inherently a problem, trade with other countries is inherently a problem, and and there's really no difference between historical Bernie, the Bernie that got to that point. I think he's changed a little bit now on immigration and and Trump. But that's you know Bernie's shift in immigration is 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 a
1: hat tip to the party and where they are right now. Yeah, the um. Uh, it's interesting to watch how Bernie answers questions on during debates about trade, right? Like, would you vote for the replacement treaty uh, of for a uh, NAFTA? And he's like, no, I'm not gonna vote for it, and he why? Because it's not gonna combat climate change. Like, what? That's what, what are you talking about? Um, you know, it's, it, it, but um, when you peel all that away, it's basically, I don't like what Trump's doing on trade because he's dumb, because he doesn't know what he's talking about, because I don't like, I don't like his manners. Yeah. Um, Bernie would have voted, and he has said this, against every single free trade agreement since World War II. He says, with breathtaking inaccuracy, that trade treaties are a race to the bottom, that international trade is a race to the bottom, um, at a time when we've lifted a billion people out of extreme poverty over the last 30 years, primarily according to the United Nations, not like some... Crazy. The crazy right wing United Nations <laughs> and Bono, you know, uh, we've lifted a billion people out of tro- uh, out of poverty, uh, extreme poverty, primarily because of international trade. So, uh, you know, I guess he's not siding with with poor people. However, this is one of those areas in which the kind of elite Washington consensus, which in many times you and I and other people are railing against, um, they created frameworks to reduce. Uh, uh, global tariffs, out of a sincere belief that doing so increases peace and prosperity and allows you to have a bulwark against the Soviet Union, that was all true, right? But the question is, oh, the things that you build to get there, are you then creating a big gap between yourself and your populace? Do your do the people? Do your constituents have? any sense that they can control this? Is there democratic legitimacy for what you do? And I think right now in the global rise of populism, and it has risen to a startling degree over the last 10 years, and uh, populism of both the right and left. I mean, there's Peronists are back in charge in Argentina. Uh, there's Modi in, in India. I mean, it's, it's we're seeing both types come up. Um, both types are reactions against Kind of transnational bureaucrats telling you how you should live your lives. Yeah. So, um, yes, Bernie's doing this. Uh, you know, Democrats have been campaigning against trade agreements forever, but they did it insincerely. I yeah. mean, uh, Hillary Clinton called TPP the gold standard, the Trans Pacific Partnership, the gold standard, and then like went against it when she was, saw that the wind was blowing in this direction in a primary campaign against Bernie Sanders. Uh, but he's sincere. Um, and I think for a lot of uh, people uh, who I respect who are thinking about voting for Bernie Sanders just because they don't like Donald Trump, sincerely. I get it. Um, and also, they think that he's not a Bernie, say what you will about his crazy policies, he doesn't seem like a personally corrupt person. He seems like a guy, a decent guy, right? Like, he's funny. Um, yes, all that's true. He would also dismantle the international trading order. Yeah. Like, the, the the beginning, the first minor skirmishes of the trade war, Donald Trump, sure, yes, he did that. Bernie would finish the job. He would go all the way to Baghdad. I, I, think, I think, as a free trader, I think Bernie's far more radical anti-free trade much than, than Donald Trump is. Much, much yeah. more. And, uh, and people kind of, you know, poo-poo that way, but decide, or they themselves believe it. Although, interestingly, uh, because of probably just reaction to Trump, Trade right now is more popular than it's been in America for like 20 or 25 years. Uh, so I don't know. Um, the the One of the biggest problems and one of the, the sadnesses of the current reaction to Trump and the impeachment trial and everything else, compared to the reaction against uh, Richard Nixon in 1974, three, when that happened in the early 70s, this – Uh, revulsion was a revulsion at the executive branch accumulating power. People freaked out. The Church Commission did all those incredible hearings that we saw the uh, the abuses of the FBI and CIA and such. Like, Congress began reasserting its authority on a whole lot of stuff. The War Powers Act came out of this, right? Like, so, the the, uh, Budget Control Act came out of this. Congress said, wow, we've been asleep at at the wheel for too long. We allowed the executive branch to run amok. Have you heard that? during the Democratic prosecution of this impeachment uh, trial. Have you heard that on the campaign trail? Only in one small way, and I'm glad to see it, but it's only this one small way. You hear from most of the candidates, uh, especially Elizabeth Warren and and Mayor Pete and some others who have since dropped out, that uh, we want to see some sunsets of authorizations to the use of military force, or or you know put a three-year thing on it, or or like get troops to help back the House, from Afghanistan. Didn't the
0: House just pass a repeal of the 2002 AUMF? Yes, which yeah. is which is great. That's like, a big deal. It's a big yeah. deal
1: that no one covered yeah. <laughs> because there's a bunch of other stuff yeah. going on.
0: I think we just broke the news well, right I, here.
1: It's, seriously, I, we might have. Um, so you see a little bit of that, but for the most part, the idea of dismantling or just reducing, trimming executive power, is not part of the conversation in the reaction against Donald Trump. That says to me that we are doing pendulum populism right now. Um, So the strong man did this. We didn't like strong man, so we wanted to get his power. So Bernie's going to come in or whoever's going to come in um, if they win the election, and they're going to say, great, thanks for having all the power. I'm going to use it this way uh, the next day, as opposed to saying, wait, you can't use national security as a reason to crack down on like Canadian timber companies. Yeah.
0: You get ideological whiplash trying to figure out what the Democrats think about the CIA and the FBI. Oh God! Um, and vice versa. Yeah, and vice versa. And and on any, any given day, they're either unimpeachable heroes or they're they're monsters that are that are destroying the very fabric of our country. And and I could accuse both parties of that. But the but as you say, the Democrats have not. We kind of hoped that there would be this teachable moment that. Maybe we shouldn't have let Obama expand executive power so much. It's not, no one says that.
1: Not remotely part of the conversation. I mean, they're not even acknowledging that uh, Obama. I mean, look, I have a lot of very negative things to say about the Freedom Caucus by people who, uh, you know, have described themselves for a long time as constitutional conservatives, which is a phrase that deserves a laugh track at this point, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they've ruined what used to mean something. Right, uh, so I have my and, and you know their their uh, treatment about executive uh, power run amok in 2020 looks a hell of a lot different than it did in 2015. However, the same is on the other side. Barack Obama. Um, stiff-armed Congress whenever they were doing uh, investigations into the IRS scandal, into Fast and Furious. Eric Holder was in contempt. He didn't care. He went to war in Libya. Uh, people said, hey, look, you got to consult Congress. He said, oh, it's not a war. It's a kinetic military opportunity or something like that. We don't see much of uh, those people saying, yeah, you know what, we screwed up, yeah. um, and, uh, and that says to me that it's going to be a while before we get back to a healthy uh power analysis structural analysis of where we're at as opposed to this kind of rising sense of of i I want to use the big stick against my political
0: opponents yeah and and i I read this today and i it was a credible source i don't I can't cite the source but that that Bernie Sanders team is already developing sweeping executive orders oh yeah in hopes of uh, taking power and finally doing the right things with
1: it. I mean, look, again, go to the debates and and all the questions, because journalists love this stuff too. Um, they want the big red button to push. Uh, and the question is like, what will you do, not just in your first like 100 days, but in your first 100 your first 100 minutes, Matt, President Kibbe, what will you do? Will you completely overhaul? Will there be a $15 minimum wage? Will we do this? Will we do this? And they all have these thought-out plans. Elizabeth Warren, Sanders, it's nuts um, and it's all you know, pen and phone stuff, uh, and, it, it, and none of it really, with the exception of, uh, again, with the military um, uh, uh, force, is, has anything to do with the, the president handing over responsibility to anybody.
0: Speaking of which, you cited earlier the uh, uh, United Nations, World Bank uh, data that, that demonstrably, irrefutably shows that free market capitalism and free trade have lifted a billion people out of poverty, and and uh, Bernie's number one acolyte and spirit animal, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, said a couple days ago that you can't capitalism your way out of poverty, um, which triggers me. I don't, I don't like using the word capitalism because I think it's it's got a lot of implications and baggage, but the one thing you have to say about Bernie and AOC in particular is that they, have taken over the Democratic Party when it comes to policy. Everybody is for single-payer health care. Everybody is for some draconian uh, taking on billionaires and businesses and Wall Street. Breaking
1: up Facebook, fifteen-dollar federal minimum wage. How's that going to work for Puerto Rico? That's yeah. a, that's going to work out great for them.
0: Yeah. So, but say what you will, they, they sort of did in a much bigger way what what Ron Paul and his, uh, his, his younger generations after him did with the Republican Party by, by creating an alternative narrative. Um, we started talking about war. We started talking about uh, uh, mass incarceration and, and the drug war and all these things that were libertarian-ish critiques of traditional republicanism. Well, Bernie and AOC have done a better job of, and I would say, hijacking the Democratic Party with uh, kind of straight up small S socialist policies. So. Yeah,
1: and uh, although it's it's always, and Elizabeth Warren's the same way, it always like butts up against the, uh, well of course we don't want to nationalize anything. Yeah. Just break some stuff up, taxes up to. She says she
0: loves capitalism.
1: Uh, yeah, she's just trying to save capitalism to yeah. make it more respectable. I kind of have heard that one before. I do have, uh, when, uh, when the, this campaign first started, when Bernie made his announcement official, I wrote a piece for the LA Times, which I write columns for, saying, you know, why the hell is Bernie uh, running? He's already won. Like, he got his ideas, all the arguments, he won all of the arguments. Can't think of any that he didn't really fundamentally win. Um, for me, it's always been a sadness that the civil libertarian part of his message so he was the first major pr- uh, party presidential candidate who had more than like, you know, 1% in the polls to come out in favor of legalizing marijuana in 2015, 2016. That was a big deal back then. Now everybody is, with the important exceptions of Joe Biden and Michael Bloomberg. Um, You know, Bloomberg was saying one year ago, 12 months ago, um, saying that that was the worst idea we ever had was to legalize uh, marijuana. Michael, I'm against any individual ever
0: making a personal choice ever again.
1: Yeah, and Biden just doesn't doesn't remember which part of whatever terrible drug bill that he wrote and took credit for forever. but for the most part, everybody else running is all agreed. And even some of them, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, is about the only one who takes the prohibitionist uh, critique and applies it to other drugs besides marijuana. That's exciting because uh, most of them are like, oh, we have an opioid crisis. we so jail all the doctors, which is not really the best way to go about it. But yet you're right. He has, um, by hitting these points over and over again, kind of building an army of people out there. I mean, the planet Bernie is a uh, huge and highly mobilized and just, yeah, uh, a crowd out there, which is, uh, again, r- reminiscent of the Ron Paul revolution. Yeah. Like, uh, And I think probably the only other campaign that gets close to it, uh, but it's just different in kind, uh, is uh, Andrew Yang, of all, of all things. I mean, the online Yang gang. But that's much more of, of like, um, very disparate in terms of policy, because he just, you know, uh, I think we should have a new policy about black cups uh, with gold uh, interior. Let's start that one. Like the yeah. website is just like eh, whatever, roll the dice on the policy. He's more like a happy warrior and and it's he, he I think he's more like uh we should have more categories of humans. You you know, you were talking about the uh, the Bernie Trump voter. Um what I like about uh that as a character or even you know, the Bernie Trump Obama voter or a Mayor Pete, you know, uh George Wallace, vote. It, like whatever. Like because most Americans are weird, right? Politics tries to organize us in these categories. And the idiots like us who write about it or talk about it or get our, our, our hands dirty in it um, are so stubbornly refuse to learn that it's not about what we think or, the, you know, the organize, you know, the ideas that animate what we're doing. I was just looking today uh, because, you know, Trump will probably survive impeachment today and get, a, you know, a kind of a, a complete— uh, a blank slate in the United States Senate. And wow, think about four years ago. He's taken on every single like power center on the right and has brought it to its knees or just like transformed it. He did it with Fox News. He ran against Fox News. People forget this. He broke Fox News yeah. in 2015 and 2016. National Review, four years ago last week, came out with a gigantic uh, against Trump issue. Go back and read it. Look at some of those names. Brent Bozell? against Trump? What? Ben Dominic? I mean, Ben is not a super pro-Trump, but the Federalist certainly hasn't been shy about uh, about, about. Glenn Beck. I've heard of that guy. He was in that issue. He wrote a thing. Um, uh, and it's amazing to see how many people since then have like, gone this direction. Some were like the Bill Crystals, and they went to the Never Trump place. But uh, uh, again and again and again, he brought them kind of uh, uh, to heel and transformed the party. I might not like where that go, goes policy wise, but as like a power move and, and and also just exposing what you and I have talked about a lot over the years is that the power of the establishment is just leaking and leaking and leaking and completely eroding in democratic legitimacy of the actual base of the voters. Um, the human beings who vote for people vote on all kinds of different ways than the people who kind of like write and try to organize the thoughts about it. Yeah. Um, Bernie appeals to that. Um, Trump appeals to that. AOC who's got pretty great game when it comes to like you know uh, talking online and these kind of things she's created her own power center. she's very entrepreneurial. I'm not the biggest fan in the world. Let's be honest about They're straight about that. However, like you have to respect the kind of game that she's brought to it. A couple other people on the right you can say that about too but um, it things are way more fluid I think than uh, and we have to relearn this every four years somehow like oh wow. We can still be surprised by yeah. outside agitators and using the internet to change conversations, and yet here we are, we're stubborn creatures. To me, the the biggest takeaway, and it's it's
0: basically a complete uh, refutation of my entire career, and you said this, people that think like us, and and by that, I'm gonna interpret that to mean people that think that policies matter, people that think that politics is in at least in part, driven by policies, um, you sort of learn, uh, starting with this sort of counter-revolution based on on being against the machine, that policy really doesn't weigh very heavily in the minds of, of voters and the public when they make these kinds of decisions. They like Andrew Yang. They have no idea what he stands for, but there's something about his persona that appeals to them. I, I think that's absolutely true with, with Bernie and, and probably Donald Trump to a great extent. He's, he's, he's the anti-establishment answer to our problems.
1: The, uh, there's a great phrase that I'll mangle from Josh Barrow, who's an itinerant political journalist and commentator. I think he might be a Bloomberg or Business Insider or whatever the hell, They're all, they all sound the same after a while. I say this with, with fondness towards Josh, but he said this in the 2015, 2016 cycle, is that something along the lines of voters don't have opinions about issues. Um, they have reactions to problems. Uh-huh. More or less like yeah. they're just sort of responses <clears throat> gut responses to this and they want to know Do you have the same gut response? Um, and which is why I, I you know in, in large part why it's so much political conversation is really stupid, uh, like, uh, you know, it's all this, like, nonstop empathy, like, oh, I totally get where you're coming from, and and everyone's got Lenny Skutniks <laughs> planted all around them. This is a term of art, uh, talking about uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, the visitor to the State of the Union Address in 1982, and ever since then, every single State of the Union Address and every single, uh, you know, debate or or you always have a local there Whose stories that you feel Barack Obama printed out Had printed out uh, in the White House In order to like to keep it real For his brain He would have like stories of individual people so he could always just be connecting with, yeah. the, uh, with the individual. So some of it, I, it gets really kind of silly and pandering. However, uh, what that is, the, the truth that it's based on, is that people are looking at, they know, they might not think that it, it would be, would have ever been a good idea to, as Trump uh, campaigned on, um, deporting the legal U.S. citizen children of illegal immigrants. This was like four or five million people. This, is, Yeah, let's do it. Um, they might not have ever agreed with that or ever thought it was going to be possible and they might not really care. But if you're waking up in the morning and saying, I think immigration is a problem that the elites in Washington have been insincere about, you had there was no question who you would vote for last time around. They could all outpander. Ben Carson literally said, "We have to seal not just the southern border, but the northern, the, the the eastern, and the western border as well." Like they all went out pandering each other, but you knew that Donald Trump believed it stronger than the rest. Parenthetical, I've
0: always wondered why we're so worried about uh, Central and Mexican uh, immigrants coming in from the south. It's the Canadians. That we should be worried about. Have you seen the Canadians and what they do? Man. It is terrible. I, I have a, yeah. a friend of mine. And I joke about this, but we're going to see
1: legislation introduced tomorrow because of this. Scott Walker talked about putting a wall on the northern border during that last uh, campaign. Was crazy. Uh, which is funny because actually we don't know where the border is in many places uh, in, on the top of North America. A friend of mine named Jacques Poitras, obviously a terrorist. Um, wrote a book about... We the, can't let those people in. No, no, no. I, I think, I think we, we already have a fatwa on it. But uh, wrote a book about like the absolute impossibility of even knowing the uh, border between, between that. Yeah, I, but like I, we get hung up on it. It's like journalists are always like, I can't, you know, do voters even understand that the, Mexico didn't pay for the wall? And it's like, yeah, they do. And they're yeah. totally fine with it. And they still will use it as a punchline at a Donald Trump rally, and you're still befuddled. Which, which brings us back
0: to the Bernie Sanders schooling of Elizabeth Warren, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this because clearly he's, he's an ideologically committed guy. He believes um, a very specific set of ideas and they're, they're generally ideas, with some exceptions, are generally ideas that I, that I find abhorrent. Um, and Elizabeth Warren was pretending to be him. So she introduced Medicare for All, she carefully crunched the numbers, and I forget what the number was, but it was like 20 trillion, 35 trillion, like we were arguing about how many trillions as if any of us even know what a trillion dollars is. Yeah. And and she got killed, that was the first time she got killed, yep. is by leading with policy specifics, trying to pretend that she was just as Bernie as Bernie.
1: And um, voters were like, no, this she is She had not run interesting. up until mid-October when she started to try to numerate her Medicare for All plan and like, try to uh, sustain what I think is a fiction, that she's more wonky and serious about her approach. She's got a plan for it, Matt. Um, uh, But up until that date, she had run the best campaign, I think, by far. She's super energetic, really good on the debate stage, Um, her plan for everything shtick still was kind of impressive she knows what she's talking about I wanted to
0: have a beer with her I'll be honest
1: kind of want to have beer mm-hmm. with her um, uh, you know she's I'm kidding. Kate McKinnon mm-hmm. I don't want to Yeah. Uh, Saturday Night Live the whole bit but then uh, so there was that moment that uh, that uh, suddenly you kind of realize wait if you actually start adding the numbers they're crazy it's better just to, to admit that they're crazy and to move on and to appeal to the utopian side rather than try to do this so that she started going down but for me A fascinating thing going forward uh, and thinking about is what happened January 13th. January 13th is when CNN breaks the story, by which I mean – the Elizabeth Warren campaign leaks to CNN on purpose right before CNN has a debate uh, uh, in the Democratic primary. A private conversation that she had with Bernie Sanders, not like the day before or the week before, but 14 months before, in December 2018. And uh, in this uh, private conversation, she says that Bernie said that he doesn't think that a woman can win the presidency. Oh, my God. That sounds like sexism. Um Bernie denies it, says that's not how it went down, and that's ridiculous if you think about it, and I'm on the record 30 years ago saying that a woman can win, which she is. Um, but for me, what's what's fascinating about that is that all the way up until that moment in the primary, yes, she's been going down uh, recently since the Medicare for All stuff, so it felt like a Hail Mary in advance of the Iowa caucuses but what had we seen from the other candidates particularly the ones around our age late 40s early 50s um, who had some of them been kind of centristy about things like debt and deficits or about uh, school vouchers or about any number of issues um, talking about Beto O'Rourke talking about Cory Booker Kirsten Gillibrand used to be a deficit hawk believe it or not uh, Julian Castro uh, and to a different degree Kamala Harris, how do they, what do they all do to hide their centristness in a, in a uh, field where Bernie Sanders is dominating the discourse? They all went woke. They all tried to out-reparations one another. They tried to like shame Joe Biden about busing. They tried Every day, like Beto O'Rourke was getting up and saying, I'm so sorry that my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather owned slaves. It was crazy. Like every day there was something new, uh, beating each other up over not being sufficiently woke as well. They all of those people, some of whom were really talented politicians, crashed and burned. They ran on it, they lost on it. All of them. And that is the moment that, that Elizabeth Warren says, you know what, now I think I'm gonna play the woman victim. Just one more time. Um, um and what has happened since that day? National five thirty eight has a great like daily poll tracker that you can move the cursor around and f- find it frozen in time. January 12, Bernie had a national lead over Elizabeth Warren, 2.4 percentage points. Within 10 days, it had doubled. It is more than 5 percentage points. You can see the little graphical. was like they're kind of close here, and then she does that thing, and then boop, and this, this is the recent result of the rise. And I think there's something fascinating about that, because there's, there's a mirror of what's happening in the media culture and elsewhere. The super strong, strident identity politics doesn't work. Even in a Democratic primary, it doesn't work. Um, And yet we see it all around us. There's people being canceled, right? There's the, the novel that's being canceled as we speak because a white woman wrote about the Mexican immigrant experience. Like it's happening all around us. And I think a lot of journalists, younger Democratic voters, other people, they think that this is how we all should think and they don't realize how crazy it sounds to most normal people, yeah. and they're going to have to keep learning this in the field of politics and media, I think, for a long time. So
0: this is, the, this is the kernel of good news, that little crack in the clouds where a little beam of light comes down where this sort of insane identity politics is, is being rejected within the Democratic primary. Forget yeah. the, the general public, which is a, a very different marketplace. Um, that's the good news, but the bad news, and Bernie, uh, I would argue, is one of the least woke of the candidates. Yeah. He's he's old school and that's one of the reasons it's why some progressives don't like him. Don't like he him.
1: has the class-based analysis rather than the group-based analysis.
0: Yeah. He 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 doesn't even know what this intersectionality grid is. <laughs> and and I stand with him not understanding <laughs> it. But the, the downside um one that sort of freaks me out and and I try not to pay too much attention to politics because it can be a very depressing thing. I I sort of uh, feel bad for you some days but <sighs> you might get like a real guy, a real socialist guy who honeymooned in the Soviet Union as the standard bearer for one of the major parties. And and I happen to think that he's competitive. He's, he's a lot more competitive than a lot of Republicans perhaps appreciate uh, because he does have the same sort of populist rage against the machine thing going on that Donald Trump does.
1: And, and that's a, a scary idea that a guy like that could win. He like came back from the Soviet Union, not like in, I don't know, 1923 not in 1934 when like maybe you could be confused about how things were going. He came back like in 19 I was at 88, 87, yeah, 88, 88. 88. Came back and he's like, "Look, they have uh these youth uh culture, they have organizations. We have a lot to learn from these people." It's like, "No. We have nothing to learn. The only thing we have to learn is don't do it that way. Yeah. That's the bad way. Never do it." I mean, you know, these sister city Burlington, Vermont. With well, uh,
0: there's no, there's no excuse because at that point everybody knew how many millions of people that Joseph Stalin killed. Yes, and, and we we sort of all agreed, hopefully, that that was not a good thing.
1: And that, uh, you know, the all the countries of Central Europe were captive police states, with with one or two exceptions. It's it communism's bad. He will say now, and uh, and there's been I've done some writing. Other people have done some writing too. You go back and see his his writing and his thoughts in the 1970s, and he did want to nationalize banks. He wanted to nationalize the means of production. That was the goal of his revolution there. Um, when he's asked about it now, he's like, "Look, when I was the mayor of Burlington, I didn't, you know, nationalize the corner stores. Well, good. So let's talk about why you didn't. You know, let's talk about like what you learned so that you were not in that space there and have any sense of." Regret, perhaps, or explanation of uh, 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 how your views have evolved. That's not what happened. I remember what Andrew What's-His-Face, who's the Polish last name, I can't pronounce at CNN, who excavates people's files from the back. So he did some excavation of Bernie's crazy newspaper writing and, like, public access TV shows from the 70s. And so when they got a quote from the Bernie uh, camp, uh, Sanders campaign, they're like, you know, his record has been consistent for 50 years. He's always been on the side of the working people against the oligarchs. Like. Consistent for 50 years is not something to brag about about that because you were wrong on a very big issue. You looked the other way in Cuba, in Nicaragua, in the Soviet Union. That was a pretty colossal misjudgment, and I'm curious to know well, you know, how he and why he learned. He's not going to say that, but the thing is that's me. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Democratic voter. I'm not his base in any way. He doesn't need my vote, um, and the base doesn't really seem to care. For the most part, they see this as— uh, e- even if they're not even engaging with it intellectually, they see this as oppo research by the Jonathan Chase of the world, who they hate because they think they're neoliberal sellout swines trying to keep keep the, uh, the insurgency down. Um, so, yeah, we could be in a place. And that's what happens when you pendulum from right populism to left populism. Yeah. You're going to get unspeakable – Uh, policies and stuff that people campaigned on suddenly in the White House. Um, And I'm afraid we're in that cycle for a while. So yes, I'm glad that you pinpointed that we have a kernel as something to look forward to, which is that eventually the purveyors of nonstop wokery uh, will at least uh, come face to face with the fact that they don't have much power. That's nice. But that's about the only thing that I'm super excited about right now. So I, I'm, I'm gonna try to end on a positive note and, and, and now
0: people are like deeply depressed and, and I have this question about uh, small L libertarians, big L libertarians, uh, liberty curious people that are sort of off put by the entire tribalism of left and right wing populism, um, what do we do? And, and because I'm a dorky libertarian, I'm gonna quote Hayek because why wouldn't you? In, in, Just in, roll up the sleeve and read the tattoo. Yeah, in in the, uh, he wrote an article when when he was he was actually looking at a very similar dynamic, looking at 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 Nazism on supposedly on the right and and really strident violent communism on the left, and and he was trying to figure out why we liberals, liberal in the classical sense, couldn't connect with people in a same visceral way, and he and he basically ends this article by saying we need to be more u- utopian. We need to not sound like we're just trying to make the establishment a little more efficient. We need to think big and, and sell really big visionary ideas about this alternative world where people cooperate and, and the beautiful things that happen when people are free. And now I'm filling in some words for him. And you could take this, you could uh, certainly Bernie, and, and I think more Ron Paul than, than Donald Trump, but you could, you could sort of take a lesson from that. They, they think big. And they're like, I don't care how I'm going to pay for this. I just have this beautiful vision where everyone
1: gets free healthcare. Um, we probably need to do a little bit of that. It's hard. I'm. I'm so. Uh, I. I'm. I don't come to my libertarianism from philosophy. Um, so I don't think utopianly. I'm like. I'm the. I'm built to be a pragmatist squish uh, and to make alliances with whoever is going to legalize drugs with me today, knowing that they're going to stab me in the back tomorrow on other kinds of deregulation, you know, whatever, like, uh, that's how I've always approached it. So it's hard for me to think systematically about that one note of optimism. So Hayek is writing in this period, a lot of people were writing in the thirties and forties and early fifties, especially in the thirties, um, George Orwell comes to mind. Looking at just basically rise of fascism, rise of communism, we got to choose one. Um, There was a whole lot of people. Like, What what did Orwell get wrong? Because he didn't get a whole lot wrong, but he got some big things wrong. The biggest thing that he got wrong was that uh, he basically said, we won't see liberal capitalism as we know it uh, survive. Actually we will see it win, Um, uh, at at least until recently. But even though, we've seen it win. We actually have seen it win. If results
0: matter, capitalism is winning.
1: Yes. Um, but I mean, it, it, it absolutely triumphed over communism and over fascism, like with guns and also with uh, with success uh, and, uh, 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 and and economics and freedom. Uh, so he was wrong about that. So people can tend to be uh, in these moments uh, pretty despairing. Um, so we wrote a book uh, called The Declaration of Independence back in 2011, and part of the gesture, the reason to do it, it was a call uh, not just to sort of analyze the political scene, which, which of course it was that too, but it was also like, you will be happier, trust me, and I know this sounds crazy, but you will be happier when you yourself detach from the tribe a little bit and don't like try to figure out what you should think about especially about politics, but about other stuff based on so some kind of person that you decided or a party to give all your trust into. Um, it's hard work. It can be unsettling. I know a lot of, of uh, conservatives or the never Trump conservatives who've been Republicans their whole life, they still are like, oh my God, what do I do with my life? I'm like, welcome to it, dude. It's pretty great, actually. It's fun to think for yourself, Um, it'll eventually take you to a a better place. The problem is right now, and we saw this in 2018 in the midterm elections, that was the highest turnout of any midterm in a hundred years. What happens when people are so fired up to beat the other team, which is what that's all it is. It's not, it's not necessarily enthusiasm uh, for their own team, although there is some with Trump and there is some with Bernie. Um, but like the turnout is because of that. That means third parties, independence, this space to be an independent, to express independent ideas is so small. You're vilified. Who's the most hated person in Washington or until he left? It was Jeff Flake. Yeah. Because he was sort of temperamentally in the center. um, And so people couldn't stand it. Like, pick a side. So, yes, that can be – off-putting or disconcerting and not feel feel turbulent. Uh, However, just like Orwell and and other people who are going through that, and Hayek, who saw it around them, um, remember that those dudes won. And they won by keeping their heads. And they created a literature that we can go back to and look at uh, based on their observations and based on their very, very hard work in difficult circumstances. Look, this ain't difficult. We're not Vaclav Havel in 1983. We are in America. We can still do whatever the hell we want to. So uh, no matter how put upon you are or how annoyed you are by things, you're free. You can still do this stuff. So don't lose hope. I just talked myself into being optimistic. I don't know how that happened. Thank you for the invitation. This is a
0: a small small bore version of utopianism because it's really just about uh, individualism in the sense that everybody's a little bit different, everybody's got a different path in life, and and we're the counter-counter-revolution because we want you to be free enough that that somebody from uh, Washington D.C. or or corporation, mega-corporation X, uh, they're not gonna dictate how you live your life. And to me that's utopian, but it's also practical because that's how we live every day.
1: Another way of putting it, would you, would you rather be Ricky Gervais or Dave Chappelle on one hand, or would you rather be like Trevor Noah or what's happened, uh, you know, to Stephen Colbert? He's become a tedious, awful bore. A really talented comedian. When you like are in the tank one way, and you have figured out the joke ahead of time based on where where you're supposed to be, rather than like, I will think unpredictably and make fun of y'all. Um, you'd rather be this. It's more attractive to be funny and independent than it is to be someone who's not even getting laughter anymore. It's just getting clapped.
0: Yes. So we need to we need to check in. Uh, because there's an end of this story that we don't know today and we need to check in uh, for your reporting at, at Reason.com. Yes. How do people find your stuff?
1: Um, go to Reason.com. Go to, you can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Welch. I'm always uh, tweeting and uh, I co-host a, 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 a two podcasts. One is the Reason Roundtable that you can find at Reason and also the Fifth Column podcast with uh, uh, Camille Foster and Michael Moynihan. The second and third best podcasts
0: on the market today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.